Yeah. I can do anything. Yeah. Hell no. Hell no. Hell no. Hell no. I can do anything. Yeah. Hell no. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Common Sense Podcast. My name is Patrick. <laughs> Say your name. And my name's Antonia. And welcome back to another episode. Um, I am super pumped about part two. You look excited. <laughs> yes, I'm shoulder bouncing in um in my new podcast location. <laughs> wow. Okay, let's let's get serious. Um last week we brought you the history um of Doug Lamar. And his journey throughout education, and we discussed some really important questions that his legacy um, has. I don't. I'm kind of a don't really want to call it a, a legacy, but in a sense, it kind of is. I think um, definition it would be considered one, even though it's not one that we technically agree with. Yeah. Last week we t- we talked about Doug Lamov as a person. This week we're going to talk about uh, the infamous "Teach Like a Champion" text um, that is in the hands of over um, one million teachers across the world. In this segment, we like to call "Beyond the Lessons." So last week we left off with, we gave you a kind of a taste of what Doug Lamov was doing with Uncommon Schools, but we didn't really talk too much about Uncommon Schools. Um, so it was founded by Norman Atkins, who once you look into what Norman Atkins does, you really start to see how small this charter school movement is. Um, Norman Atkins is also the president of Relay Graduate Schools, which I don't know if you're noticing more people in the program, but I'm noticing lots of people who are coming out of, you know, four-year programs and then not being able to find positions in their fields and deciding, oh, you know, I'm going to go to grad school, quote, Unquote. I I don't know. I I feel some type of way about Relay Graduate School just because um, not all of the people I see going in, but some of the people I see going in, when they come out of Relay Graduate School, it kind of seems like they just went through a longer Teach for America summer camp program. Um, and so, like, you're still left feeling that like there were some fundamental things that they did not get in that program. Um, so. Like I said, he's the president of Relay Graduate Schools, and he also founded Newark North Star Academy, which was Uncommon School's very first um, campus, I believe, in 97, I think we said in the last episode. And so I was completely unaware of Uncommon Schools prior to my first year of teaching. Um, and HISD, Houston ISD, has this huge um, pre, like, how would you say? It's not in service. It's like, before the in service, uh, I don't even know what For you would call that. First year teachers. First year teachers, yeah. Okay, it's like a um, it's like a first year like um onboarding. 
okay, I, I, I guess we can say that. So <laughs> <laughs> I remember being super excited and like you, it was the first time I was going to like official teacher PD and like, you know, everyone's excited. Everyone has their little notebooks and they're all Ooh. dressed up. <laughs> Cause this is the first job that I've got where they're paying me a salary and I've got insurance. So I'm, I'm going to be there. So I remember like getting the schedule and going in and they were like, okay, well, the day is broken up into three sections. And for each section of the day, you get to choose like two, two sessions to go to, I think. And I remember walking into a session about classroom management and I was funneled into that one because the one I wanted to go to, it was full. And so they were like, oh, just go next door. And I was like, okay, fine, whatever. So I remember going in, sitting at the back of the, t- like the very back table, because this one was also basically full. And the the teacher who was transitioned from the classroom, because they were just wasting a lot of time going from one activity to the next. And so she shows us this video um, of students like seated at their tables and their hands were folded. And I just remember being so confused because like in the bottom right corner of the screen, it said Uncommon Schools. And immediately I was thinking, well, why would Houston ISD be showing videos from another school system? Like that didn't even begin to make sense to me because I knew that HISD had an entire almost department, if you will, that created these videos for teachers to use and look at because I watched them online. So it didn't make sense to me that I was at a a PD session and seeing things from another school system. So the kids are seated with their hands locked and the teacher, she says like some word and they all stand up at the very same time. And like, she says another word, they all push their chairs in at the very same time. She says another word and like everyone like starts to move in very military like manner. Boom, to, boom, 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 boom. That's exactly what it felt like. Um, they move to their stations. And so like they go to the table and they wait. And then she says another word and, you know, then they pull their chairs out and it it just felt so rigid. And it's just like, is this really like an elementary classroom? (laughs) (laughs) Because I I cannot imagine trying to get 20, 22, 23 kids to all move like that and to be at their stations. Like, like it's possible, right? But to move with such precision and like, incomplete silence on top of that. So I, I just remember it being extremely clicking on the website like once and like looking to see what it was. And I did not leave the website with the understanding that it was a charter school. And this was, what is that, two, three years ago? Like, and so I remember, you know, just brushing it off like, oh, I would never do that in my classroom. I'm not going to use that. And then coming now understanding this is a huge network that at their core like it seems that they do not trust children to be capable of doing what they need to do in order to learn and grow and develop as children should um so i'd be i'd be curious now about maybe exactly what technique she was using because you have to know that there was a strategy <laughs> from teach like a champion because uncommon schools and douglas mob like have this very close relationship that there's no way that the video I was watching was not a teach like a champion strategy. So we have a uh, pretty similar experiences. I think that most people who know of uncommon schools come uh, into this introduction or this relationship via the very popular videos. Right. And 
when I first saw the video, uh, it was in my first year of teaching. Um, it was I worked at a charter school in Southeast DC. And these were the PD videos that they use in our service as well. So um, what people don't know is that you have to uh, buy the videos and in, in order to show them in your professional development. Like you can't just go. She didn't, oh. she didn't buy that. She went on YouTube. I'm dead. You're supposed <laughs> to because, um, well, you're supposed to go and purchase uh, the videos or or attend a workshop or training, and they give you all of the videos on a USB drive. I have the master USB drive with all the videos because I went to one of the trainings. Uh, but I, I came back, was in my charter school training, and they were using these Uncommon School videos to get us to prepare ourselves to manage children. It wasn't about pedagogy. It wasn't about engagement. It was like before we can even, quote unquote, engage students in any sort of learning or any opportunity, we have to get them to follow directions. There there was a strong emphasis on following directions. And it was about using these uh, techniques, like you said, um, that they mask as like joy factor, (laughs) <laughs> in order to get kids to be compliant. Um, I was really confused by it because when I saw the video first in my first year teaching, I'm like, wow. As a first year teacher, I'm I'm like, that's cool. I'm sorry, for me. I was like, that's cool. I said, those kids are on point. You know, like I was like, wow. And then I was just like, but that does not look like fun. <laughs> at all, at all. I, I fell into the, the uncommon school model and the the cult of it all because my school was out of control, right? And when you see these videos, and I'm not sure if they're staged or not, but when you see the videos, it's like, damn, my schools are my school is so out of control. I want my 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 students to be like that. And there must be something that I'm not doing as an educator because like we're teaching, quote unquote, the same kids. That's how it was brought to me, right? It's, it's like what makes Uncommon Schools popular is that, you know, they're working with low-income students. Um, they're working with predominantly black and brown students, and they're making them, uh, quote unquote, high-performing. Um, and the way that the videos make it seem like they're super in tune with the uh, the teacher and the instruction when in reality they've just been traumatized to follow instructions and that's what i figured out and we talked about this on the the color chart episode it was it was like they're not really following their directions because they understand or or they know but they're following these directions because they're afraid of what's happening next or they want a reward or they want um something external but it's I, I they're not in yeah. I often ask the entrance. question of like I ask the question like <laughs> what purpose is this serving? Particularly uh the hands folded and locked position. Um I mean there were some things that I understood, like the hundred percent rule. I was like, okay, um, but every technique 
was then used against me as an educator and and and, and, and as a teacher when I kind of fought against it was like particularly the hundred percent rule, right? So it's like I told them I don't I don't want to wait for a hundred percent. I'll wait for ninety eight, and I'll wait for ninety nine, maybe <laughs> ninety five, probably. But a hundred percent, it just felt like it took so long, and and I felt like there was such an emphasis on behavior management and classroom management, and not enough emphasis on pedagogy and engagement through content. Um, that. I don't know. We we just kind of missed the ball. Our priorities are in the wrong place, and I blame that on the uncommon schools training that we had. I feel like waiting a hundred percent for kids. Like you could be sitting there two, three minutes, and then you've lost the ones who were ready to go as soon as you said, "Okay, let's go." Right, which is not fair. So, like I said, I I went to a <laughs> uncommon schools two day training. Uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, my principal chose me and another teacher because they kind of labeled us as, like, the most promising teachers in the building. And so we got access to go to this, like, really exclusive training. Go ahead. <laughs> what? <laughs> what does it mean to be the most promising teacher? Like, I think he were your kids quiet in the hallway? Is that how they... <laughs> I think he just believed in me and, the, and this other teacher. And, like, they believed in our teacher magic. So they taught taught us to uncommon schools in hopes of, like, cultivating our teacher leadership. That's interesting. For the long, before you go into the the training, for the longest time, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the champs strategy. Yeah, I'm familiar with champs. So for the longest time, because my school, like, threw threw TLAC at us so, so often, I thought champs was a part of TLAC. And I remember... And this this says a lot about how fed up I was my first year with where I was. I remember like second semester, they were like, who wants to go to a champs training? It's two days. Yikes. And I went because I was fed up with admin coming in my room. It was like, at least that's two days this week that I don't have to see y'all come in and like stare and, and cause chaos in my room by walking in. Um, but now I know that champs is not a part of TLAC because, you know. Unfortunately, I have access to the book, but I want to hear about what happened at the training. So I went to the training. The training was um, in a, no, it was not in a hotel. It it was on Georgetown University's campus in a very beautiful building. Fancy. Lovely pastries. Love the pastries. Great coffee when I drunk it. Incredible. That's where the money went. Incredible orange juice which I'm sure had nothing to do with Uncommon Schools and everything to do with Georgetown University, but that's where we were. I remember taking um, the freeway to get there. It was my first time getting to or going to Georgetown, and I was just like so overwhelmed with the traffic, but whatever. We got there. Let me tell you how the room is set up. The room is almost set up like a WWE match. Um, There is a ring in the middle um, and then there are tables, so it's it's a it's a it's a giant fishbowl, pretty much. And so, what we did was we dissected, if you not even dissected, but they brought to life maybe five or six techniques, and then they showed us those those techniques in, in, in the fishbowl. 
they invited us up <laughs> to uh, practice that. And then we practiced that with our tables um, and with other teachers in the school. Um, I loved it at the time. I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. I really feel like I'm learning something. I really feel like I'm learning some practical tools that I felt like was so necessary for the state of like my school in the state of my classroom at the time. It was like, well, I need to, I need to pull something out of a hat. And that's what teach like a champion like is or was for me at the time was like, okay, in a, in an, in, um, are you in trouble? Well, here's this, you know, it's like, you know, like here's this magic wand, like you do this and you do one, two, three, and it's great. Right. And I was really, impressed by Doug Lamov and his team. They like they facilitated so seamlessly. Everything was scripted. Um and as a first year teacher, this was kind of the only behavior management um training or pedagogy that I had gotten. And I was like thirsty for this because I never got any, we never talked about behavior in undergrad. So I was just like super annoyed because I didn't feel um, equipped to do anything in my uh, uh, classroom currently. So it was, it was really, 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 really frustrating in class. I was grateful to be chosen to go to the Doug Lamoff training. But what I realized was that when I started to implement those techniques with my students, it's like it worked for a little bit of time, but there were those students who was just like, I'm not doing this shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I told my student I was going to stop cursing. Um, You know, they were like, I'm not doing this. Or they were like, they were um, rebelling. I wrote a blog post recently where I talked about how my first year um, my first students, uh, my first class, like they were my most rebellious group of kids, you know? And that's because we try to put so much uncommon structure on them <laughs> that didn't like have, they have no choice. They yeah. didn't have any choice. And we never really talked about like relationship building, um, outside of like writing random, um, note cards on kids' desks. And um, we never talked about the the bigger issues, which were why are why are our students having these issues in the first place? Unlike really, what TLAC was for me, or Teach Like a Champion was for me, was it was like those reactive things um, that helped you to get things under control, but only for a limited amount of time. Because I don't know it. It's it it's so much. I think it would be useful if we can kind of go through some of those techniques, if you will, uh, for those listeners who aren't familiar with Teach Like a Champion, and let's let's dive into it and see what we can dissect now that we are third and fourth year teachers. Because I am a teacher now. Mm-hmm. What's up? What's up? What's up? Yes, you are. <laughs> Congratulations, Patrick. You are a teacher again. We'll get into that after the break. Yeah. What's up, y'all? You know, the reason why we started this podcast is because we want to amplify the voices of teachers in our education system. You can help us to continue doing that. 
by leaving a comment or a five-star rating on our iTunes page. And don't forget to visit our website at www.commonsensepod.com. Yeah. And we are back. Wow, that's <laughs> and it. We, we are not answering any questions, but we are instead going to dive deep into the infamous text that some are calling the Bible of education. I feel like you want to go swimming because you keep saying dive. I'm actually living in the desert right now, so... Um, I mean, I don't want to go swimming, but um, those are just the words that I have in my head. So they're going to come <laughs> out in, in the way in which they want to come out. Uh, we're going to dive into some of the techniques that are happening in your nephew's classroom. And we want to see, uh, you know, how you guys feel about it. So please listen closely. Send us your comments and questions. Um, and let's let's dive in. <laughs> That was three times in less than one minute. <laughs> I'm dead. What's up first? Um, so first we're going to talk about slant or star. If you're unfamiliar with slant, it stands for sit up, listen, ask and answer questions, nod your head, and track the speaker. Now, Doug Lamov doesn't take credit for slant. He says it originated in KIPP schools, but he does take credit for STAR, which is sit up, track the speaker, ask and answer questions like a scholar, and respect those around you. (laughs) Two very different things. Um, Very different. The R kind of throws it off for me. The respect those around you. Um, which we want children to respect those around them if others are respecting them. Amen. But it's interesting because he opens up this this segment um, on controlling how students sit on the carpet with, regardless of how great your lesson is, if students aren't alert sitting up and actively listening, teaching will be like pouring water into a leaky bucket. Mm. Which I don't agree with. Um, I know in my kindergarten class, we do have assigned spots on our carpet just because I've learned uh, with my one and a half years in kindergarten that five-year-olds and six-year-olds crave consistency and predictability a lot of the time. And so last year, I let them sit wherever until I realized that it was stressing them out. And I asked and they wanted a spot where they wanted to sit, um, where they could sit consistently. And this year, I also started the year with letting them sit anywhere and quickly noticed, you know, they want a place to call their own. The only way that I control how they're sitting on my carpet is that they have to be in their spot. Um, because personal space is a concept we're still learning when we're five years old. And so if I were to just let them, you know, be out all over the carpet it would consistently be he's touching me he's touching me he's touching me which i still get but it's not as much so they sit crisscross applesauce or they can sit like a mountain where like your knees are up and you're like kind of hugging your legs or they like to sit mermaid which the girls have taken ownership over um which is really interesting (laughs) oh that's cute so uh so those are the three ways that my kids sit on the carpet i do if i'm on the carpet with them I don't mind if they're laying on my carpet. So like, you know, if you envision like a regular kindergarten classroom and there's, I have letters around the perimeter 
and normally everyone's seated on a ladder. But if I'm sitting on the carpet with them in order for everyone to see, I don't mind if, you know, they lay on their stomach in order to see and be comfortable learning. Because the most important thing is that the children are engaged, right? And if you are not bothering a friend next to you and you're focused on what Miss Adams is doing, then I don't mind. I'm going to have more problems forcing you to sit in a way that's uncomfortable for you than if I were to just let go and let you do what you need to do. Um, I've also recently learned that so often when we're trying to correct students' position on the carpet because they're like moving around and wiggling, like their bones are not ready to sit in that way for so long. Like they're still growing and developing and like it's literally uncomfortable for them to be seated in a certain way for X amount of time, right? So like when I think of how they want children to sit for however long the mini lesson is, it's like, are we really doing what's best for children or are we doing what's easiest for adults? Someone might say to you what they said to me, which is you have low expectations for your students. The fact that you don't believe that they can sit on a carpet with their back straight and their hands in their laps. And so therefore you're going to lower your expectation and, and allow for kids to lay on the carpet as opposed to holding them to the expectation that they can sit with their hands folded back straight, giving those consequences, acknowledging those students who are doing things cor- correctly. I well, mean, I'm 25 and I still can't sit up straight all the time. So asking a five-year-old to do it consistently for however many lessons we do each day is just disrespectful in my opinion (laughs) and I mean if you think about it like what is so important about the way that they're sitting why is that something that we have to like have control of I don't know something has always been weird to me about policing students bodies right I know that um there are students who, you know, will go and they'll sit in what we used to call a scholar position, which <laughs> scholar position is a knockoff slant and a knockoff star. Um, and that was always the default. And so, like, if you weren't talking, if you weren't um, writing or if you weren't working, then you were in scholar position. And the purpose of that is that, you know, you're paying attention more if you are in scholar position. But that was not the case for my students uh, from my first year of teaching. Many of them were having trouble, like, focusing for that long, right? And the whole purpose was like, well, you need to speed up your instruction so that they're not in scholar position for a very long time. And I was like, but can't they just have a moment to kind of relax? And and then I, I know that there are so many of us, uh, me included, who I need to doodle and write and like do all these different things. And, and so it got to a point where I was just like, I don't really care how you're sitting, if, if your legs are in your chair or if you're, um, you know, if you lean back and then you come back forward, like you have those little wiggle breaks that don't really disrupt anybody around you. If you have that, then that's totally fine. Um, I'm not going to police your body because that's too much for me. <laughs> like I don't have the time to do that for because at the time I had 28 of them. Now, if we're a little bit too laxed to the point where it's like, okay, we're not paying attention because 
we're like we're just a little bit too comfortable, then I'll bring us back. But I'm gonna trust that you that you know yourself enough um, that you can regulate. You know when uh, or what's the best position for you when it's time to pay attention. What's the best position for you when it's time to to uh, to uh, work? What's the best position for you when it's time to relax in school? Right. Um, because school is like another home and, and then, you know, someone else might also say to you, well, when they go to work, you don't sit like that at work. You don't sit like that in a board meeting or blah, 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 blah. blah. And it's like, no, you don't, but you teach students to, um, or how to sit or how to act in different environments, right? Like how we sit at church is not how we sit in the classroom. It's not how we sit at home. Yeah, They're all different. Um, but I'm not going to get in the business of always policing students' bodies and what they do because that's not for me to do. I will say I do not like chairs tipping, <laughs> but <laughs> I also teach five-year-olds and oh, we fall out of the chairs all the time. I'm about to say five-year-olds, a kindergartner will fall out of a a, a perfectly still weighted chair that just slide. sideways. Yes, right. <laughs> just slide right out. Just like, wait, what's happening? But so one of the things, like with the chair tipping, it lends itself really well to natural consequences. Yeah. Because like, <laughs> I tell <laughs> I tell you, keep your chair legs on the ground, keep your chair legs on the ground, and you don't listen to Miss Adams. Well, you know, eventually you're gonna fall out, and then you're gonna look around and be like, well, maybe I should have kept my chair legs on the ground. Doug Lamov also goes on to say, quote, because star and slant is such a critical part of a high performing classroom, you might also considering consider developing nonverbal signals that allow you to reinforce and correct without interrupting with your other what you're otherwise doing. <laughs> He's making quiet hand signals <laughs> right now. <laughs> and it, and you it were threw me off. I was confused, which I imagine just is how a child will feel. So he goes, for instance, you might fold your hands in front of you to remind students to sit up straight or point with your eye, point to your eyes with two fingers to prompt students to track you when you're speaking. Just things that are really unnatural. I, I just I would hope that if you have to <laughs> confuse children in the middle of a lesson, um, that it wouldn't be for how they're sitting on the carpet. Another popular technique that Doug Lamoff shares in his book is called Do Not Engage. And this is coming straight from the book. So if you want to go back and check, you're more than welcome to. Um, it says, when you're discussing behavior with students, avoid engaging in other topics until you have resolved the topic you initiated. Of all the situations in which a student might try to change topics, the moment in which you ask her to take accountability for her actions is the most likely. So he goes on to to share this little situation which I'm sure you'll you can imagine how I responded when I read it um so it says it's an interaction with a teacher and a little boy named James and so it goes (laughs) (laughs) poor James right poor James so the teacher said James you were talking please move your cart to yellow James says it wasn't me please move your cart to yellow Shanice was talking not me I ask you to move your card. Please get up and move your card to yellow. Even if a student is is right in that instance, the technique is saying that um, they need to go along whatever the consequence is, and then you can deal with the truth later. 
this was something that I fought against so heavy um, when I was going through the TLAC training uh, at, at my first school because, you know, sometimes as a teacher, we get flustered, right? And sometimes we think that it's somebody talking or doing something when in all actuality, like we're wrong in that instance, right? Um, and I remember telling uh, my principal at the time when she was like correcting me, like, well, don't engage with the student when they're trying to say that it wasn't them or blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, they might actually be right. So I don't mind if we engage quickly on that because in a sense, it shows that they're an equal partner in the work, right? It's not me like as the dictator and the authoritarian who's like, you know, wrong. You know, it's like, yeah. Like, you know, students should have the ability to defend themselves or defend one another. You know what I'm saying? Um this happened in class so many times and I used, and I just walked away feeling very 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 frustrated. Uh what this really tells students according to my principal then was that students need to know how to follow directions. And so she brought up this instance with police. And she said Doing what you are teaching them to do, which is to talk back to authority and to and to um and to be combative with authoritative figures, is setting them up to die. And she told me, she said, if a if a student did that with a police officer in the street, they could be the next one shot and killed. That's extreme. It is extreme, and I, I don't really think it's far from the truth either. But yeah. I'm not upset with her for saying that. I'm upset for her for blatantly acknowledging that a system exists and blatantly playing into it. She sees it as like, I'm preparing them, but I saw it as like, we are just containing a system of oppression instead of liberating them from it. You you know what I'm saying? It's, It's like, if a police officer is accusing a black student for doing something that they did not do they should and they actually do according to law have the ability to uh to defend themselves right or 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 to say um that i didn't do it now maybe in court and at a later date but they should be able to do that with authority as well i guess all all i'm trying to say i don't want to ramble too much is that Sometimes to teach like a champion, uncommon schools a method. They say that they're you know preparing students and that this is important for a high performing classroom, but instead it's just perpetuating a system of oppression on an already oppressed group. And I find that when you shut down students immediately like this, they're less likely to come tell you when, when something, something is actually wrong. is wrong. Absolutely, because Mr. Harris not going to believe me. Mr. Harris not going to. Be- Yep. Believe me, right? That's why I instituted community meetings because I like I was like, okay, we 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 have a conflict. Let's stop the entire class and let's deal with this as a group so that we can all move forward and we all have equal understanding of what's going on. Yes, it may take more time. Yes, it may take more instructional time, but there is nothing to me more important than the health and the strength of a class community. That to me is more important. The citizenship piece is more important to me than the academic piece because you can be academically sound. And that's what we're noticing. People like 
there are kids who can read, but navigating the world in such a way that is uh, uh, healthy for them and their families and their communities and their health, like we're struggling with that piece because the humanity is taken out of education and reinforced uh, or in inhumane ways are kind of being forced through this book or not this book, but through this technique. I think you said it better than I could have, but I'll read a little more um, just to close up what Doug Lamoff thinks about this technique. He goes on to say, it may be reasonable for the teacher to discuss who was talking with James, but the expectation needs to be that the latter conversation doesn't happen until James has first done what his teacher asked. Until he has obeyed the initial request, there is no other conversation. So essentially, even if James wasn't talking, James needs to accept this consequence. And then later on, maybe after the conversation, his teacher will let him move his card back. But what has that done to his relationship with his teacher? I don't know. I don't even know if the word relationship is in that. Is there an index? Let me flip. So we're going to share one more technique from the infamous Teach Like a Champion 2.0, because I have the updated edition. Ooh. Fancy. He calls the strategy no opt-out. He says, turn I don't know into success by ensuring that students who won't try or can't answer practice getting it right. No opt-out can help ensure that all students, especially reluctant ones, take responsibility for learning. In the end, there's far less incentive to refuse to try if doing so won't save you any work. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think that this is important. The essence of it is important because we want all students to be actively engaged in the learning, right? Like when we ask a question, we want all students to try. Like we don't ask questions for 50% of them to answer. When most teachers ask questions, the in, in our heads, all students' hands are going to go up. And that's what this technique is trying to ensure, that all students are actively um, partaking in the learning process uh, in the class. And so I'm with him on that. But I think what this book f- fails to realize is the reality. Um, I know that with No Opt Out, where we, we want students to grapple with rigorous content, but the true reality is not every student is on the same level. And so I think what's really missing from the No Opt Out uh, technique is talking about scaffolding. I think that that is missing from the no opt-out and then allowing students to show what they know um, in a variety of methods. No opt-out to me is very limiting and it is very like hole-in-one as opposed to um, an entire golf course. So he says that there are four basic formats um... And what's consistent across all four formats is that the sequence begins with the student unable to answer, but it ends with them giving you the right answer. And this ensures that everyone comes along on the march to college, um, which we've talked about in the past, our, our feelings about going the march to college, right? So I, I think it is important that, you know, students are allowed the opportunity to, to be wrong and to give the wrong answer and to ask their peers for support and for you also to allow them to say, you know, I don't know, or I'm not ready, or could I ask a friend for help, which is something I do a lot in kindergarten. If I ask a question and that child is not ready to give me maybe the answer I'm hoping to hear, 
they have the option to, you know, say I'm not ready or can I ask a friend or when everyone is giving an answer, I may just tell them, you know, I'm going to come back to you and give them that extra wait time that so often we do not give children um, and then cycle back to them that way that they they still know that Miss Adams sees value. Like I understand they have something to contribute, but they might not be ready to share that quite yet. And it's not always that it has to be the right answer. Right. That is true. That is true. Yeah. Um, we practiced this in the training that we that I did with Doug Lamov. And what I remember specifically about this particular technique is that what it really looked like to Doug Lamov and his team was just circling back. So, for example, I would ask the question, what color is the sky? And I would say Antonia. And Antonia would say. Orange. And I would say. Not correct. Um, Jimmy, what's the answer? Blue. Antonia, what's the answer? Blue. Blue, correct, right? So (laughs) that's how no opt-out was taught to me, was making sure that we circle back to those students who either got it wrong or those students who didn't answer. And and I don't think that um, we're repeating the information um, is the best practice here, um, nor do I think it is something that shows that students really understand the content um, or the skill that we are teaching. That's what I was going to say. I, I use this a lot in like when we're doing number talks because you want to understand why children are giving you incorrect answers so that you can know like the misconceptions um, that hopefully you are aware of already, but so that you can take note of those and move forward and how you go forward with the lesson, right? So it's awful to only want to restate those right answers. Like you should engage those answers that are wrong so that other children who may also have that answer but like just weren't called on can see why this was wrong and what's so what's a strategy that I can use to get to the right answer or what tools can I use to reach the right answer right and in that sense like especially in math um when I used to teach guided math I used to love being like okay this answer was incorrect let's uh, use blocks for this, let's use bears, let's use some other manipulative, and then I'm going to give you a different problem, or I'm going to ask you the question in, in a different way to see if the understanding had changed. And maybe you'll just get it wrong today, and then we'll try again tomorrow. Um, but creating a culture of error, I think, is really important in, 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 in classrooms and having students willing to... Um, take ownership over their learning is important but the 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 importance of scaffolding cannot be um eliminated from this discussion at at all i always tell my kids that mistakes help our brain to grow um because yep five-year-olds they want to do things the right way and a lot of times they will repeat it until it's done the right until they they like achieve mastery on it Mm. and for my kids who know, like, who are the ones who are readers or are very familiar with, like, basic math, function, like, ex- strategies or whatever you want to say, um, who have a sense of what's right and what's wrong, like, what it should look like, it's really important for them to know that mistakes are okay. 
Um, and especially in the culture now that's like so driven towards accuracy and like getting them ready for college, them knowing that it's okay if I make a mistake and that I can grow from my mistake really helps. I, I mean, it just helps them grow. So that's something that I say multiple times every single day in kindergarten. And then at times I like intentionally make mistakes with what I'm doing so that they can point out my mistakes and like, oh, even Miss Adams, you know, makes mistakes and it's okay. We asked you what you thought about Teach Like a Champion and its techniques. And I just want to read a couple of these. I'm trying to actually, I'm going to kind of speed through them. Um, someone said that my district leadership swears by it, but do with it what you will. Um, someone else said that it was New York City's Department of Education's text of choice for training young teachers in 2013. Uh, this person read as little as they could get away with. Um, someone says that they only use one strategy from the book. Other than that, it's not their style. In New York, many charter networks live by the book and many principals have the book in their collection, but don't use it. Uh, someone also said that it was a required text for a class that they had in college. They watched videos that came with the text as examples. Wow, they're watching this in college? Crazy. Um, essentially, it was full of strategies to implement. Can they recall a single one? She says no. Um, <laughs> uh, someone also said that they learned from the book, um, so they used a couple of strategies for lesson planning. For sure, uh, high expectations, no opt-out, habits of discussion, etc. Um, but the book lacks personhood. Um, someone said that when I became certified, the alternative route they used the strategies from the book to evaluate us, setting people up to think it would be the be-all end-all to manage a, a classroom in Baltimore City. Wow. Yeah, crazy, right? Uh, I wanted to read this one. I thought this was really interesting. Someone says that um, this book is for teachers who struggle with management and need tips on how to have a classroom run smoothly. However, there are things in the book that they think are highly effective teachers, um, that they think highly effective teachers do without the teach like a champion language, but it's supposed to be a resource for teachers who aren't as equipped as others, which I think to me is kind of the main purpose of the book, which is why I'm not here for the book uh, <laughs> altogether, which is, I think, and as we said in part one, so kind of bridging them to, to, together, Doug Lamov's legacy is to train as many teachers as he can, as fast as he can, by any means necessary for the sake of getting students to be high test performers. And these militant um, techniques are doing just, I think as long as our priorities are on quantitative data, I think as long as we have a teacher shortage, um, as long as the teaching profession is looked down upon and is so easily attainable, um, as long as we um, are feeding into a rapidly growing charter management organization um, regime, like there will always be room for teach like a champion. Um, yeah. 
to grapple with theory, to grapple with like real pedagogy and research, like that takes time. Um, but there are so many schools that don't have the time to really enact the philosophy that they know is critical for our babies to be internationally competitive in the world. Um, so like, no, it, it's like, it's like he's trying to provide that crash course yes. before you walk into the classroom. And right. I'm not okay with children having teachers who've received a crash course. Yep. What does that say about us? That all we are is a warm body. All we are. And anyone can do it. That anyone can be a teacher. Anyone can be a teacher with Teach Like a Champion. That's the whole purpose. Because pedagogy is not important. If pedagogy was important, that there would be a crash course on on that but instead they see our students as people who need to be managed and um and disciplined not engaged um not um ref- not you know not reflected on not taking their communities and their histories into uh consideration, consideration. yeah and into consideration um, not being trauma informed, uh, none of that is in Teach Like a Champion, and I think that that proves to me that that they're ultimately doing a disservice, despite what the scores say. Um, they are doing a disservice to their to uh, to to their students and to the profession as a whole. Um, and what's interesting about the Whenever people talk about, oh, well, they have, they're such, they're doing so well on like tests and the scores are so high. The schools they're competing against or in their head that they're competing against don't care about the scores. So what does that say? Well, that's true. Absolutely. The scores is just a, it's just a thing that they do. Nobody gives a damn. Trust me, I worked at a at a private school where we just took the test just just to take the test, but we were more interested in field trips. We were more concerned about creating um, assessments that included multiple modalities. Like we were not concerned ab- about this test; it was just something that we did. But they know that, especially in charter schools, that those test scores, those assessments are tied to the money in their charter. So therefore they have no choice but to um to shut it down for the test. To only That's focus on those tests. I really want to see parents opting out. Okay. I want to see parents yeah. opting out of tests. And I want to see them pushing uh I want to see parents and teachers pushing their uh their schools and their districts to create better ways of assessing students and 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 multiple ways i want to point everyone in the direction um of an organization that we've already talked about which is the center for excellence in education um they are pulling together teachers and schools who want to do away with with standardized tests? So that is a great resource to uh, to go and um, and engage in. I threw my Teach Like a Champion book in the trash. I deleted my picture with Doug Lamoff. I'm still embarrassed <laughs> by that. I'm still embarrassed by that. And um, I think we 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 got to start having greater discussions. We we have to start um, asking better questions. 
Doug Lamov has contributed a lot to education, to the land, uh, to to you know, to the field. But that's all he's done has contributed something, and I don't think that we should take what he's contributed and face value. But instead, you know, some techniques work for you. God, God bless you. But you are a goddamn fool if you really think that cold call started with Doug Lamov. Right. <laughs> or if you think that no opt-out started with Doug Lamov. Marva Collins been doing that. <laughs> Period. She has, right? Teachers have been doing that. And, you know, this also gets into, like, education, celebrity culture and all that stuff. So I don't really want to dive into that. that no. <laughs> but I am... Not trying to teach like a champion, no goddamn more. I'm trying to teach like Patrick. And, I, and, I, and I'm trying to teach like my kids need me to teach because sometimes that's different every goddamn year. So, oh, Amen. sorry. I'm, Amen. I'm done cursing. Sorry. I don't think I have anything else to add to it. I think you've kind of covered everything. And I love how you said you're not trying to teach like a champion. You're trying to teach like Patrick. <laughs> um, but if y'all have any thoughts about it, if we missed anything, Please let us know. We'd uh, love to continue that conversation with you. And if y'all have any suggestions for other people that you'd like us to profile on Beyond the Lessons, yes. we'd love to hear those. Come on, Beyond the Lessons. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully on the next episode, we'll be able to talk about your first few weeks in Qatar. Yes? Yes, yes. Yay. I am um, getting on the plane in 24 hours. So... Um, by the time this episode will air, I would be ending or starting my second week of teaching there. So, um, let's get it. Let's get it. Let's get it. Thank y'all for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to the common sense podcast. Subscribe at our website at www.commonsensepod.com and receive the episode a day early. You can also subscribe to the Common Sense Podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. We love seeing your reviews um, and reading them, and it helps spread the message to other educators each time a review is posted. Yes, and we'll see you next time.